Oh, can I can I just ask a quick question? Yeah. So, Lily, you're you're in you live in St. Petersburg. Yeah. And and why? I live here because I just moved. I decided to move here, but I originally was a student here. I studied Russian literature. Ah, okay. At St. Petersburg State, I've been here for about three years. Just like because I, when I studied abroad here, I was very. I really liked the city, and I really wanted to like be able to. Well, first of all, to speak Russian better and to kind of <laughs> yeah. like be more part of the actual life of the city, not just like be a visitor. Right. Yeah. So that's what, yeah. So I'm. So you you living there permanently or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, permanently in the temporary as like in the sense that like I don't think I don't I wouldn't think of anywhere I lived as permanently permanently at this point in my life because I just sure like, of course finished I finished school three years ago and moved here. Right, right, right. And what and what do you do for like work? For work, I very unrelated to my degree. I do marketing for a a cryptocurrency startup. Oh, okay, that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the big picture is just assimilating into life here, and I do feel uh -huh. like I actually am like part of like I have a I have a life here. I'm just curious, like what uh, what what brought both of you to? Um, I mean. Is, is it okay we talk a little bit about this? Because I'm just curious. Yeah, totally. If you're curious, ask questions. I mean, we haven't actually talked about that directly on the podcast. Right, right. So, and Smith, did you, uh, what is your relationship to that place? Lily lives here. That's my relationship. Oh, that's your, okay. That, I mean, that's good enough. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't study Russian in school or anything like that. Is this your first time there? Yeah, yeah. And what, and what is your, I mean, how long, how many days have you been there? I've only been here since... Uh, Wednesday, but I'm going to be oh. here for a couple more weeks. That's very exciting. Like, it is exciting, especially because like we've been talking about it so much, obviously, and I like am getting kind of the behind the scenes look, but then I'd just never been here before. And so actually uh -huh. coming in, like getting to see Lily and her life has been really nice. So and, and what and, and one last question, what made you guys start this podcast? Well, we, we like talk on the phone a lot already. And we had kind of been having an ongoing conversation like since before all this like recent Russia stuff happened in the US, uh -huh. um, where Lily would just kind of like talk about the overly simplistic coverage of Russia. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, totally, blah, blah. And then we were still having that conversation. And then the election stuff started to happen. And it just became more relevant. And because our natural form of communication with each other is talking, we thought it would be nice to just capture that in some way. Oh, okay. Basically, like, since I've been living here for three years, and like, I felt like I should be doing some kind of some form of journalism, basically, like expressing something about Russia to American people. But I felt, yeah, I felt this sort of like pressure that I put on myself to do that, especially because when I would go home, people would be like, what's going on in Russia? Like, it's crazy. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Wait, have, you ever, have you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? <laughs> yeah. This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. Graphics backed up, I got to get off of this road. Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone. This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith, and I'm currently in St. Petersburg. Yay! I'm Lily. I'm also in St. Petersburg. We're in my apartment. I'm in my room. Smith's in my closet. And today, we're really excited because we have a really honored guest. His name is Sean Guillory, and he is the host and creator of Sean's Russia blog podcast, and also the holder of a PhD in Russian history from... UCLA and probably has many other things to identify him, but that's all. Hi, yeah. Sean. <laughs> Hi. Hi. The other thing I should mention is now I'm, I'm pretty much officially affiliated with the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian and East European Studies. And you're in Pittsburgh, right? I am in Pittsburgh, yes. Wait, are, are, you, are you a professor there? What's, I, um... No, no. I'm basically, they're going to underwrite the podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I'm doing some other stuff for them. And I teach there, too. I'm teaching a class right now on U.S.-Russia relations from 1700 to the present. So, Oh, my God. That's awesome. I have a bachelor degree in Russian literature. <laughs> <laughs>
today we're gonna do kind of like an overview of the Russian left, not just focusing on Navalny as like the only mm-hmm. opposition figure to Putin. We did an episode about Navalny's like figure kind of. Um, right. So we don't want to necessarily get too into that. Just noting with the Navalny thing, one like idea that Sean has brought up in a few different places is this idea that Navalny kind of creates space for other political movements. So kind of talking about those in specific. And I know that you talked a lot about that on the This Is Hell episode. So mm-hmm. we will try not to be redundant, but... That episode, the This Is Hell episode came out like right before you published that article in Jacobin. Yeah, we were actually, it had been submitted and we were waiting for the edits to come out. Do you want me to talk about that? Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, so I I think that the story behind the article is actually interesting in and of itself because the Jacobin published an article by a, a Russian activist from the left front who's in exile in Sweden, I believe, uh, Alexei Sachin. He and, and a friend of his, I think, and who's also Sweden, they wrote an article for the Jacobin basically arguing that um, uh, Navalny is Russia's Trump. And the article... Is dumb. I mean... Sorry. <laughs> Well, it reflects a debate that's going on amongst members of the Russian left uh, about what to do about Navalny and and how they should engage or not engage or approach him uh, in his politics and things like this. And um, I criticized the article on social media and Bashkar Sunkara, who I've I've met and know and uh, written for them before the, the piece on 1996 elections, he offered me to write a response. And then I immediately contacted two of my friends in Russia and asked them, would they like to compose something together? Uh, because, you know, the thing about it is, is like, this isn't my struggle, right, for about Navalny and what to do with it and the Russian left. It's their struggle. So I felt it was really important that any response comes from people who are actually there and, and part of this debate. And yeah, I mean, basically, the argument that Navalny opens up this up space for Russian leftists isn't my argument. It's actually their argument. I just happen to, of course, agree with it. And there's a lot of things going on in Russia right now on the grassroots level. You know, if you pay attention and you read a lot of Russian press, particularly if you read the provincial press, you learn that there are ecological struggles, there are labor struggles, there are community civic struggles, there are struggles around parks, there are struggles around parking, there's all these things, and I'm sure you, both of you are familiar with some of this as well, the struggle in St. Petersburg, uh, Lily, around uh, St. Isaac's Cathedral, right? There's a lot of things going on, and and Navalny is a, his movement and his effort to enter in or make opposition politics more powerful, particularly around his person, there seems to be a a slow, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but there seems to be a growing politicization of Russian society. And the Putin system is, is reliant on apathy, political apathy and acquiescence. And so, you know, while I don't agree with a lot of Navalny's positions, I mean, speaking for me personally, and then also some of my Russian leftist friends don't agree with a lot of his political positions. They nonetheless recognize that as interest in him grows, that opens up a, a broader space for other people to be politically active and connect with local struggles and, and things like this, right? I, I heard and, and read those points in the number of articles we're discussing. When you say politicization of Russian society and like point to all these more local issues, you're totally right. And it's definitely like, it's definitely really important, I think, to repeat and emphasize that to a, to a non-Russian audience that like there are these struggles happening around, yeah, for example, St. Isaac's Cathedral going to the church or that's confusing sounding, but it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> I can explain it right now. Or, or for example, you also mentioned this, I think, on the This Is Hell episode, but like the Khrushchevki, like the, all the protests around that. Um, we did an episode on that, too, so people can go get their backstory. Um, but, but first of all, I'm just curious, like, is this does this actually is, is this definitely like new? These local protests and like people feeling like more sort of encouraged to kind of like make noise or like come out for 
various issues. Is that actually like wasn't happening before and is now happening? No, I, I don't think I don't think it's I, I wouldn't certainly characterize it as new in terms of, um, you know, it, it didn't it wasn't around five years ago, let's say, or even before 2012, let's say. I mean, these things have, have existed for a while. I mean, I, I one of the recent interviews I did was with Misha Grabovich, and he has a book on protests in Russia where he charts, you know, these kinds of protests going on all the time and over the last 15, 16 years and into even into 1990. So, no, it's not it's not new. But the couple of shifts that I do see that are really interesting is that, first off, there's an increasing social economic dimension. Mm. So, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, the economic crisis and this, the, the lowering of standard of living. What's happened is, is that there's, there's a, um, a think tank in Russia called the Center for a Political, Social and Political Reform that's been putting out studies over the last year charting um, labor disputes. And what they're finding is a, is a market increase in them. You know, I mean, we're not talking about thousands, right? We're not talking about like 1910 Imperial Russia. But what we are seeing is that more people are willing to um, speak out and organize locally in particular around things like wage arrears. Regular people from villages are protesting attempts to put industrial waste into where they pick their mushrooms, Right. And I think what it is, is that there in a lot of these voices, you don't and it would be wrong to look for this, you know, some sort of direct complaint against the central government. Right. This isn't about Putin. Mm -hmm. This is about local officials. Most of the time, this is about employers. This is about feeling that their concerns aren't being heard. So they have to appeal above them to the media or to Putin or something like this to get their voices heard. And I think this is really important because in a lot of the Western quote-unquote discourse about opposition politics in Russia, it tends to fetishize people like Navalny, right? Or it fetishizes whoever's the new kind of opposition figure that a lot of things are coalescing around. But, I mean, Russia doesn't need another Navalny. You know, they don't need somebody to, like, be on the white horse and bring democracy. They need a, a democratization of society, right? And for people to believe that, you know, they have a voice and they can they can put pressure on local officials or their employers. I think this is what's really important. Hmm. So that's like a more of a like a mentality shift in a way. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't have any, you know, hard evidence to suggest that this is more now than it was before. But I think it's an aspect of, you know, domestic politics in Russia that doesn't get enough attention already. And so to then know that information and then make the argument that Navalny is somehow opening up that space, would it be maybe more accurate to say that he kind of provides a face to like the general unrest that exists across Russia? But are his policies closely tied to these like more provincial issues? Well, that's what's actually interesting, and I think he gets a lot of credit for this, because one of the, the, the long-standing problems of Russian oppositional politics has been that it's mostly centered in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, and it's mostly a discourse of, of civil and political rights, right? So if you look at the protests that were going on uh, before 2012, that really, I think, culminated in 2012, right? They were about, you know... Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, human rights, access to the vote, or, you know, even the 2012 protests about falsification of elections. And what's interesting about Navalny and what makes him, I think, different than, say, the late Boris Nemtsov or Ilya Yashin or, or these other important figures, he has taken on more of a social economic rhetoric, which is natural for his anti-corruption position, right? Because his politics before was kind of encapsulated in a slogan of don't steal, that there is a moral issue uh, or a corrupting of society issue with, with the fact that the Russian elites were stealing. But now with the economic crisis, he, it's opened up a window in which for him to connect that corruption with the fact that Russians in general standard of living is going down. And I think that is a really important step because he's turning and you can see this in his development of his quote unquote movement. 
he's establishing offices in the in the provinces. The two protests that he called this out this year, the most striking aspect was they were not just centered on Moscow and St. Petersburg. And his message of anti-corruption and his constant emphasis of this was taken and transformed into local voices, right? So it wasn't like, you know, Igor Sechin or any of these guys around Putin who are reaping, you know, billions of dollars from the state budget. It was my local representative is mm -hmm. corrupt. Mm -hmm. You know, my local representative is taking green space away from us. So I think that's, that's what I think why he, he isn't in many respects what you said, he's kind of a face for this. And but I think this is how recognizing that space has opened up because he's the symbol is really significant. Yeah, because like Navalny's main platform, right, is anti-corruption and he has this anti-corruption foundation. Yeah, so exactly what you said, like it's such an almost like abstract concept, anti-corruption. Yeah, I saw the like argument that it that um, sort of it can be applied to local corruption issues, for example, or just like more localized examples. But when when we're talking just more generally about like opening up space, I was thinking more along the lines of like the fact that people go to these or have gone to these protests. Let's take the to two really big ones um, all across the country this year in March and in June. Lots and lots of people are going there, not necessarily because they like Navalny or agree with everything that he says or like feel, you know, like super galvanized by him, but because they can like get behind an anti-corruption message or they can get behind an anti-Putin message or so it's like there there actually are options within that. And it's like Navalny right. kind of ties them together, but a lot of people, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't say that they like support him or would necessarily vote for him even. Yeah. No, and that and that's really that's a really important point. On top of that too is that I mean, I don't know if you you know how many protests if at all you guys have been involved in, but I've been to a lot of protests over the last 20 years. And one of the things about protests is that when you go to them, you've recognized that you're not alone. Kind of like group therapy. Yeah, it is kind of like group therapy that you recognize that the things that you believe in aren't so crazy <laughs> or, or even they may be crazy, but, you know, you feel like you're in a community. There's a community of others. And I think that's really important for the growth. I think community or a sense that there is a community out there is really important for the growth of any kind of politics. One thing was like you mentioned the sort of like apathy issue and, and on the podcast, This Is Hell podcast episode, you said earlier, let's say in the 2000s, that was when like this kind of unspoken contract that like will be politically apathetic, the people will be politically apathetic as long as sort of like things are pretty stable economically, people have enough extra income to like go on vacation and et cetera, et cetera. So like that is trending down that kind of like lifestyle. Right? And like, and part of that, you mentioned also the crisis, but just to like make sure that's really clear, like in the past three years or so, sort of since Crimea and since the economic crisis has started, sanctions, et cetera, the value of the ruble has halved and then now it's like slightly better, but it got really bad. It got worse. It got lower than half um, its value from that time. Mm -hmm. That just is, I feel like to put in perspective for people, I'm really not, I'm not talking to either of you guys, but <laughs> other people who might listen, you, if you have a saving, savings in rubles, suddenly they're worth half in a foreign currency. So if you wanted to, for example, travel, you now probably don't have money for that because everything is suddenly twice as expensive in the euro or dollar or something. One thing I wanted to talk about real quick was in that original Jacobin article that was like calling Navalny Russia's Trump. I think we can kind of dismiss that comparison or not or not linger on it. But one thing they did bring up was that he has like a few people in his campaign who are like former Kremlin officials or mm -hmm. oligarch types. And the, one of the arguments that that article was making was that He's like beholden to a subset of rich people in the same way that any other political figure would be. It's just that his happened to be more like internationalist versus maybe the more traditionally like isolationist. And I'm wondering, A, is that 
true? And if it is true, like how have you heard him kind of square that fact with the kind of more populist message he tends to have? You know, understanding his position within Russian elite politics is a really interesting question. I don't profess to have answers because it's really difficult to find evidence. But in conversations I've had with people who know this stuff really well, they have told me that, you know, the question becomes, where does Navalny get all his information? How does he have information about you know, the various labyrinth of foundations that allows for Dmitry Medvedev to have giant houses and things like this. He says it's from public record, yeah. Public records. Public records, yeah. I'm sure a lot of it is, but there is a suspicion. And, and granted, I want to be clear that I don't have proof of this and I don't know, I haven't seen any, but it makes sense to me that he functions someone somewhat like how Julian Assange functioned several years ago. And that is, he doesn't care where the information, who's giving him the information, because in his view, they're all bastards anyways. But it seems that members within the elite are giving him information to strike out against their rivals. Mm -hmm. This is what I think, I have a suspicion this is part of the role he plays. He's like a facilitator vessel for right. political rivalry within the Kremlin. According to this theory, it's not. According to this theory. And I'm not suggesting that he is on one side or the other, or he's compromised by one side or the other. But it seems pretty clear to me that this explains how he's able to do these really big exposés on really powerful people. Right. Yeah. It seems like the difference between like uh, the example of like WikiLeaks versus Navalny is that Navalny is functioning in like the same microcosm as these people that he's taking information from. So like there's potential for whatever if if we take this theory as true, there's potential for whatever information he's getting to like come around and affect his his political standing yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. And I would I would imagine, too. That in terms of, you know, a segment of the Russian elite, they're fully at peace with, with Navalny. They think he's a positive force. Even as a emerging or nascent check against the members of the Russian elite, right? To get them to, um, you know, to check and expose their, their kind of greediness. So, you know, in, in kind of larger picture, I wonder if one of the powers he has and the function he plays is as another disciplinary mechanism. And that would be one argument for why the Kremlin allows him to continue walking around. Exactly. I've had this suggested to me and kind of, you know, passing by people that, you know, they're not suggesting he's a Kremlin agent, but he's useful yeah. in certain respects. a more broad thing but when I hear like the phrase like open up political space um, I know that his political like leanings are, are more economic but I just like wonder about like the social aspects that are opened up and I know I think you guys mentioned in the not just an artifact article about him proposing that like uh, gay marriage be open for a popular vote but I'm just wondering does this general like increase in protest culture come with more like liberal social change as well? Or do you think that because it's so rooted in the economic that it's just bound to continue down that path? First off, I wouldn't say that it's a purely economic thing. But I do think that social kind of cultural issues, I don't suspect there'll be much evolution in that direction. Like Navalny comes across to me as you know, a somewhat of a social libertarian, except when it comes to immigration issues where he's quite, you know, has a really horrible past of, of, you know, being a nationalist, essentially. And he is, he is and has been described as somewhat of a liberal nationalist. 
and his degradation of people from Central Asia and who are, you know, horribly, horribly exploited people. And, and there have been some awful, awful cases over the last couple of years of, of people from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and, and other places in the Caucasus who are literally held in slavery. So he does have this very, very dark spot. Held in slavery where? Their home country? No, in, say, a basement in the outskirts of Moscow. Um, there was one story I remember in particular that they found, like... I forget the numbers, but it was in the tens, mostly women, of course, uh, I think from Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan that were literally like held in slavery. Russia does have a very large immigration uh, labor force, immigrant labor force, both legal and illegal. So he, you know, in his statements, he's he's come out, unfortunately, basically racist in some respects and ethno and Russian ethno nationalist. Which is, a, which is a major, this is one of the problems, like Russia, Russian ethno-nationalism is, a, even the Kremlin doesn't dabble too, too deeply in that stuff. And his economic, from what we can tell from his economic positions, they're more or less neoliberal. Okay, this might sound pretty naive, but are there examples of like political movements or like visible cultural movements that have been like social issues based or is that something that just like doesn't compel the russian population as whole as a whole as much as like labor and economic issues might um i mean you know there's a in st petersburg in particular there's a there's a lgbt community activist community um but you know these these issues just don't really translate i mean if you want to put it in kind of a crude comparative you know, gay rights in, in Russia is similar to what gay rights were in the late 70s and early 80s in the United States. Now we have this, you know, basically state-sponsored state homophobia. You know, feminism, for example, doesn't seem to communicate at least in, in a very, has a very strong voice either uh, in Russia. So I think that, you know, these social issues, it's going to take a, a lot of time. Um, which is ironic, especially the feminist issue is ironic, because at least Soviet discourse had a recognition of women's rights and women's equality, right? The same thing with race, right? Soviet The Soviet ideology had a discourse of, you know, um, uh, racial harmony and anti-racism. Uh, and it's a, it's a real unfortunate thing that... I mean, one of the tragedies of the collapse of the Soviet system is that this discourse is completely gone. Yeah, discourse, but I don't know, like, I don't know how much on the ground that actually played out the way it, it may have sounded, like, friendship of nations, la la la, but that doesn't mean that people in their day-to-day -day lives were necessarily, like, particularly taller. I don't actually know. I don't know. Sure, it's it's it was it's more mixed. I mean, it was more mixed because you also get articulations of people in kind of a nostalgic frame, right? For you know, when we had these contacts with you know Africans and C Central Americans and South Americans, where when we read about the struggles of Latin American peoples in the newspaper. And we felt some like affinity and, and pride. I mean, I, I think there, I, you know, I don't want to overstate that it was some sort of like, you know, lovely utopia here, but I, I think the discourse was important. And there wouldn't have been really, it didn't sort of like make sense geopolitically to have any kind of like anti-immigration quote unquote discourse. Specifically, when we talk about immigration in Russia, we're talking about like, as you mentioned, the country that Central Asia because those are part of the Soviet Union, there wasn't like a debate about like people coming across borders and coming in this sort of more like... In, in like a strict way where like borders are stagnant. Or, right, or right. like there would be right. like the reality of populations were being moved around during the Soviet Union, but now like this unidirectional, like people coming from Central Asia to come to Moscow, mostly in St. Petersburg, but to come to Russia basically to find better wages, that's been intensifying in the post-Soviet years, right? Yeah, I mean, like, because, for example, take, I think it's Kyrgyzstan in 20, over a quarter, if I'm not mistaken, over a quarter of its GDP is is remittances from immigrant labor in Russia formally. And, you know, so they, their economy is completely dependent upon remittances back 
where in the Soviet period, you, you know, for all its faults, you still had kind of an investment of the state, central, you know, Soviet state in, in the regions. I mean, this is part of one of the resentments of Russian ethno-nationalists, right? Wait, one of the resentments is that the money made in Russia is going out to these non-Russian states, you mean? Yeah, the, the, one of the resentments is that, you know, two things. First off, the Soviet state was not a Russian state. It was a multi-ethnic state. And it was a state that invested and developed the periphery at the expense of the center. So it, it, it developed, you know, Uzbekistan and, and Tajikistan and, uh, you know, Georgia and even Chechnya and all of these places at the expense of Russians, quote unquote. This is one of the this is one of the ethnic this is one of the resentments because if you look at it you know there has never been a Russian nation state even in the imperial period it was never a Russian ethnic state ethno state it was never a Russian nation state like say Germany or France it was always a more of a you know more like the United States in this sense this isn't this doesn't mean to say that there isn't Russian cultural and ethnic hegemony but nevertheless it is not an ethno state. So wait, I want to I want to shift one last time okay, just sure. um, to steer back to Navalny a little bit um, and talk more broadly about like the left in Russia because one of the things you guys know in the in that article in, in Jacobin is like especially like American leftists sort of like romanticizing you know Soviet era leftism and then viewing like current leftism either as like a caricature of that or just like supplanting their own image of, of American leftism onto it and I mm -hmm. think that manifested in in the response to this article, which is like a lot of people on social media being like angry and immediately just like being like, you know, he's a nationalist, which like right. fair enough, but fair like enough. not not willing to like read the article and actually like <laughs> think about what you guys were trying to say. Mm -hmm. And so in the spirit of that, I was hoping that we could just kind of map out what exactly the Russian political left looks like right now past Navalny. Yeah, like just to add to that question, like, it's not just a romanticization. I think there's also like a, a confusion about like, you know, how OK, so we have uh, in, in the US, we have like the right and the left mapping onto so in some senses, you could sometimes say like, you well, you can put Republicans and Democrats in there. You could put like liberal and conservative and these like dualisms that when you put them into the Russian context just are more confusing, I feel like, because like when you say the left in Russia, I feel like you're saying like straight up really like socialist communist lead leaning people and liberal as something else right so you just you just want us to be clear about our terms <laughs> i want to be clear about the terms because when you say like liberal and left and and then even in that jacobin article that you didn't write the one you responded to they opened by calling navalny right wing which is just like right what so i mean yeah, yeah. so just all this right left liberal like all these terms i i want to just touch well i would like you to touch them. <laughs> right i mean liberals liberals in russia i'll just give quick kind of you know general definitions liberals and and make kind of how they would fit in the american political spectrum just to kind of help people situate things i mean it's not an exact fit but whatever liberals in russia by all intents and purposes fit somewhere between the Democrats and the Republicans in the United States. They can they kind of can go to, you know, the the right, you know, the Clintonites to the more, you know, what used to be moderate Republicans. Now they don't really exist that much. If you put Navalny in, in the Russian context, I mean, an American context, I think he would fall as a very right Democrat. If you would put Putin in the American context, he would fall toward a very conservative Republican, not conservative like Tea Party freaks, traditional. like old, yeah. hardcore American conservative, traditional conservative, with, with many caveats, of course. The Russian left is an interesting mix because 
you have a variety of different lefts, right? You have the Communist Party, for example, which is a mixture of kind of patriotic, nationalist, but social democratic, you know, leanings. You have Just Russia, which is kind of similar to a social European social democratic party, for example. And then you have the people that I'm affiliated with who are more like you would find here in the United States, like amongst, you know, kind of left communists, anarchists, socialists who aren't within the political system. And they, they have more of a, a European orientation in the sense that all of these issues of like gay rights and, and feminism and stuff, they're totally on board with. And along with like social economic justice and labor and all of these, I mean, they're much more akin to like the people I hang out with here in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, Jacobin, for example, Jacobin people, I think they fall perfectly within that framework. But they're small. They have no power and uh, and they have splits within them. You know, the, the major split amongst Russian leftists in the last couple of years has, of course, been Crimea and the Donbass, particularly the Donbass, where some Russian leftists imagine it as some sort of like worker struggle. <laughs> right. And, you know, here you get people like um, Boris Kagalitsky, for example, is one of the people that has has gravitated toward that position. Or you get people like Edward Limonov, who's another who's gravitated to that more kind of nationalist position. But despite their more European orientation in their politics, they're also dealing with Russian realities. So if you want to actually build a movement or build power, political power in Russia, you have to deal with the fact that Russian um, street opposition, Navalny, for example, has a, a nationalist liberal economic slant. You have to deal with the fact that if you go into a crowd of, you know, regular average Russians and start talking about LGBT and feminism, that it's not going to communicate that effectively. So, you know, the question is, and this is a question, I think, for the broader left in the United States in particular, do you want to be a leftist because it's your identity? Or do you want to be a leftist because you want power and change society? And if you want the latter, then you're going to have to make a lot of compromises for your identity because it's not about you. One of those compromises you're arguing being that you acknowledge that Navalny has these nationalistic tendencies, but that he does open this space that is more important than those. Yeah, yeah. and you have to swallow it. One of the things that, that really disheartened me with the reaction to our article was a lot of American leftists basically transplanting their American leftists, leftism and American politics onto a Russian framework which, as you both know, doesn't translate. It, it seemed like it was, it was a really ironic expression of American exceptionalism, which I feel American leftists should run away from as far as yeah. they can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems, I mean, that, that's like a theme that we've brought up in a lot of other episodes, this like propensity of, of Americans to map American politics onto Russia. And, and that might happen across the board with any other country. It's not maybe it's not specific to Russia, but I think because Russian politics are like obscured or had been for a very long time to Americans. And then again, coming back to this thing that we're like, oh, well, Russians are white. So like <laughs> they probably do the same thing we do. Whereas, like, you might find that people, like, allow more difference for a country like China simply because of the very simplistic fact that Chinese people look different than, than like, Western right, white people. Right, right. This is something that I'm, you know, I, as I mentioned when we first started, I'm teaching this class right now on U.S.-Russia relationship, not relations, relationship, uh, because I'm dealing with a whole bunch of different issues. And one of the things that is, and this is the first time I'm teaching this class, so I'm learning a lot myself. And this is, the, this is actually one of the points of it. But when I started looking for syllabi on teaching Russian-U.S. relations and really Russian-U.S.-Russia relationship, none of the classes I looked at went before 1917. The majority of them started in 1941. And this was incredibly frustrating because one of my complaints is that U.S.-Russia relations as they're spoken about, as they're imagined, and how they're thought about and how to deal with them continues to be through a Cold War lens as if there weren't relations between the United States and Russia before in the 19th century. 
And so in designing the class, I was really struck and I'm increasingly struck by not only a lot of the parallels that people at the time in Russia and in the United States made with each other, you know, slavery, serfdom, abolition, et cetera, et cetera, but that the attitude wasn't so much of a demand for Russia to mimic the United States. Just give you one example. This past week, we read in my class the correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander I. Who knew that these two men wrote to each other? And in this series of letters, it's, it's letters, there's five letters between the two men, and then there's a couple of letters from some of Jefferson's people to him about kind of facilitating this conversation that Alexander actually sought. And in one of the letters, it cautions Jefferson. It says, when you're talking with, when you're corresponding with Alexander, you need to be cautious to not press upon things like abolishing serfdom, parliaments. You can provide like suggestions and talk about freedom of speech and some other things that, because he's in a precarious position is the way they put it with Alexander. But what struck about me is that they actually considered the position of Russia in how they were going to express their ideology of liberty and, you know, of the American Revolution. Whereas today, there's an expectation that for Russia to mimic mm-hmm. America. Well, for everyone to mimic America, because everyone should be democratic and, and free and like America. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And to be, I mean, this is, this is a narcissistic fantasy. Part of this, the, the point of this course is to try to understand at what point in the relationship between the United States and Russia did this demand for mimicry on the part of the United States enter in. Oh, is it in the 90s or is it earlier than that? From what I can tell, it begins in the 1880s. Oh, damn. All right. <laughs> it begins in the 1880s. Um, before, I mean, Russia, of course, had all all of the tropes about Russia being barbaric and sla- slavish and autocratic and despot, you know, a despotic place. That was all there in the United States and, in, in, you know, even in the late 18th century. But nonetheless... There wasn't a demand that, oh, they're despotic, so we can't talk with them. Or they're despotic, and therefore they are inherently uh, incompatible with us. Was there a goal in getting, you know, in saying like, oh, Russia should mimic us? Or was it simply just like a manifestation of a growing narcissism in America? There seems to be a turn in the 1870s, 1880s, particularly at the point in which the United States is becoming more imperialistic beyond the continent. So, right, it 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 reaches its its apex as a continental empire, and then it's becoming more and more interested in, say, Southeast Asia and Japan, Latin America, etc. Right beyond its its kind of continental borders. And at that point, it seems that this ideology of kind of the the universalist mission is already there. I mean, you can find this in Jefferson, but it begins to be something in which to envision or create elsewhere. Like the exportation of the American project seems to, okay. in my view, it, I mean, it seems to take off in that period of 1870s, 1880s. And it's also ironically at that very point in which the United States is consumed with internal tor- turmoil of labor unrest and racial violence against African-Americans. So it's interesting to me that at that point in which the American project is in crisis within America, (laughs) that the call to export its idealism and to imagine it elsewhere happens at the same time. And you can find this rhetoric repeatedly. In fact, you know, I'm assuming you guys are both familiar with the great uh, commentator on Russia Today, uh, Molly McHugh. (laughs) In one of her articles from several months ago, she explicitly says the way to revitalize the belief in the American values and American system is to be in conflict with Russia. Well, she's the one that after Trump initially said that there was going to be a ban on trans people in the military, she like piped up and insinuated that it was Putin's doing. <laughs> in the 1970s, in the late 70s, Jimmy Carter makes similar statements that because the, the social and political malaise of the late 70s in the United States could be revitalized 
if we press Russia on human rights, if the United States rediscovers its international universal mission. Yeah, it's it's almost as if like, okay, well, we can see internally it's not working. But if we press for it in other places, like we can shape that image however we want because it's far away and nobody actually knows what's going on there. And we can like tell ourselves this narrative that the American dream is functional in some sense. Yeah. And I think Ukraine plays a similar role in the imagination of some of these people in the United States, because, you know, look at the, the Maidan happens in 2014, right at the cusp of like the, the, the nadir of the EU after the economic crisis. You have the United States imperial project stalled. The Arab Spring has collapsed. Uh, the march of liberal democracy seems to be, you know, in suspension. Um and Ukraine, uh, you know, with the desire to be European, this desire to take on more Western values, it's like, yeah, things are shit over here in America <laughs> or in Europe, but those people still want to be like us. Therefore, it's a re it's a reaffirmation of our universalist um, um, existence. Right, right. And anyone that questions that is questioning like our right to exist or something. It's like in really, a way. As as in, like Russia, question, Russia being against Ukraine wanting to join the EU is somehow against, like, is an affront to like the very, you know, like foundation of 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 our yeah, like why why we exist and our ideology. It's like such a. <laughs> I mean, it's bizarre if you think about it. It's almost like the re it's the rebirth of the end of history, right? It's the rebirth of this Fukuyaman idea at the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and you see this in the discourse of the Russian in the 1990s in Russia, and, and still some of the main narrative is that they were almost there. They were finally getting it. And then once again, it all went to shit because of that Putin. And it's like, you know, our desire has been crushed. Why don't they love us? Why don't they want to be exactly like us with all our racial harmony and good economy? And you have these statements in the late early in the in the 1920s, for example, of people saying literally Russia needs to become a United States of Russia. And so there's this there's this rhetorical like line that crops up. I, I highly recommend everybody read David Forlegzon's American, The American Mission in the Evil Empire. That a lot of what I'm saying is taken from this book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book about the effort to, quote unquote, free Russia since the 1880s. This rhetoric comes up again and again. And our relation, the American relationship with Russia is in relation to Russia's ability or desire or lack of desire to mimic us. Yeah, God, the Soviet Unionists have killed these people. They were just like, no. <laughs> It's <laughs> exactly not what we want. I just wanted to quickly ask if you covered John Quincy Adams yet. <laughs> we did. We read John Quincy Adams. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, he's 14 years old and he's making these observations about Russia when he's a secretary. And, uh, you know, he has all of this rhetoric about Russia being he has some really funny lines about how he struck that um, Russians bathe like, you know, women, Russian men and Russian women bathe together. And then they like jump into the snow naked because they think <laughs> because this helps against scurvy or something. <laughs> it's like some, he has all of these. He has these lines about like how, you know, there's a belief amongst Russian women that if their husbands aren't beating them, then they don't love them. <laughs> it's just like the, the crudest. That's you know, scary that that's still a, that's still like a phrase people reference now. That's really scary. Wow. 14 at this time. Oh, God. He's 14. He's writing this at 14 to his mother. <laughs> yeah, but this this is the thing. Like the discourse of this comes out of of travel narratives that are produced by mostly like German and in uh, Europe other Europeans from the 16th century. We went from the left into this really awesome tangent, and I'm really happy it happened. But remember, Sean, when you were mapping out the Russian left, you mentioned a just Russia and a few other things. Left front is what? What are they? Oh, okay. So the left front is um, Sergei Udaltsov's mm -hmm. uh, party in which he, he just got out of prison. It's difficult to know where they stand now. Udaltsov was, was put in prison and some of their other prominent members fled the country. And the question now becomes is, well, what's going to happen now that he's back? So it's still kind of... And, and you can tell from some of the interviews that he gave a few weeks ago when he got out of prison... He represents 
more on the line of Russian leftists who embrace the annexation of Crimea and also support Russia's interference in eastern Ukraine. It's one of the main fault lines amongst Russian leftists today. This issue, Ukraine, is one of the main fault lines. And he represents more of, I guess, what you could call the patriotic wing of that. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. I'm glad you explained that because I wanted to like get Udaltsov in here. Partly because it's timely that, like, as you mentioned, Udaltsov and Leonid Razvojayev. Yeah, Razvojayev. They were both put in prison specifically for their participation, again, in the protests in, in 2012, the Bolotna. So just to connect that for people, they were in prison and they literally just got out, like, really recently. Yeah, two weeks two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Yeah. I think Razvojayev is still in prison. I think I'm not sure. So they fall into even like another another type of leftist. Yeah, if you would put so you know if you would put like say the Russian non-systemic left on a on a political spectrum, there's a lot of convergence in terms of like you know how they view social economics, how they regard globalization, how they regard capitalism, you know how they regard the welfare state. I think Udaltsov is probably more on the statist side. On the more, I don't want to say Stalinist wing, but certainly leans more in that direction. But the, you know, there's a lot of overlap amongst a lot of Russian leftists on these particular issues. But what has emerged since 2014 is that divide over Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine, Crimea, and the war in Syria. Hmm. Okay. So there, you know, there would probably be more unity than difference if it wasn't for these issues. And 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 then Navalny has has cropped up to be another one, right? To what to do about that? And sort of your position, or like you and the two Russian leftists that you wrote the Jacobin article again. Can you say their names? Ilya Medvedev and, and Ilya Budrakis. Budraiskis. I have always pronounced mispronounces his name. You guys, your position, the two Ilyas and you, is that the left should support Navalny. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far to say support. I think, in solidarity. So, for example, you know, if Navalny calls a protest, you go. If uh, there is a political action that, you know, any political action that he's involved with, you make an effort to participate in that space. If he's a victim or his movement is a victim of state repression, you support them against that state repression. You know, this kind of stuff and standing in solidarity, but also standing because the the, the argument of, of both Elias, and I think they're absolutely right about this, is that if you want to have uh, as, as a leftist, if you want to have some influence over this growing movement, standing on the sidelines and criticizing isn't going to give you much space to change, to affect how that movement is functioning. One of the ways to sway it or one of the ways to push it in a different direction is to be there and participate that's the episode thanks for listening be sure to follow us on instagram and twitter at she's in russia and subscribe and rate us on itunes and sean where can people find your stuff uh, you can find me at uh, seansrussiablog.org and on Twitter at seansrussiablog. Yay. Yay. Thank you for coming on. This was a really, I'm excited about this one. It's a good conversation. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am sure. Okay. Because now I'm feeling like self-conscious that I just like, it was so scatterbrained that it's not going to make sense to anyone. No, 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 no. That's perfect. That's our style.